Weirdly enough, I'd always struggled with my name, and that was really down to its perceived proximity to whiteness, which then became very literal. So I kind of had this weird sense of my name didn't fit my ethnicity, not based on my how I felt internally, but just how I was perceived externally. And so the mission then became, can I change my relationship to my name in order to change my relationship with my identity and with my history? Can I be proud of this name somehow? In today's episode, join me in conversation with Greg Bunbury, where we discuss the transatlantic slave trade, surnames associated with slavery, Greg's intricate and complex relationship with his surname, and his awesome work in diversity, equity and inclusion. Names enriched with meaning are part of one's identity and hold such importance. I'm Maya Mitzko September Welford. What's your name? My name is Gregory Bunbury. Hi, Gregory. Really, really lovely to have you on as a guest. That's my name. Thank you so much for taking the time today and and also reaching out and sharing your story. When you when you reached out, I um, the the topic that we're going to discuss today and the topics that we are going to cover aren't really topics that I've covered before on this podcast. So I'm really, really excited to be sharing your story today. So tell me a bit more about the surname Bunbury. So. my name really speaks to the, um, the legacy and history of um, the, the British slave trade. Um, the Bunburys are actually one of the oldest families in England. Um, it was one of the names that came to England following the Norman conquest of 1066. And the Bunbury family um, resided in Cheshire, where they maintained the states there for centuries. Uh, so the family name is actually derived from the area near Bunbury, near Nantwich in the Shire. Um, it derives from the old English name uh, Buna and the Burr, which means fortress. And uh, Bunburys all apparently descend from uh, a Norman warrior who procured land in England after the defeat of the Saxons at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. So over the centuries, the Bunburys spread out and they emigrate to Australia, the Americas, and a few eventually become extensively involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Wow, thank you so much, Gregory, for sharing that. Um, It's really interesting to hear that you know so much about kind of the history behind the surname and how, you know, it's it's got some er origins at the time of kind of 1066 and so on. Um, You mentioned that it's got ties to the transatlantic slave trade. When did you come to kind of learn a bit more about the history of your surname? So a lot of what I know about my name is through the extensive research of my uncle, Anthony Bunbury. And I found out the wider story of my name probably early 20s, maybe late teens, early 20s. Um, But weirdly enough, I'd always struggled with my name uh, up to that point. Um, And that was really down to its perceived proximity to whiteness, which then became very literal when I found, uh, when I learned of the extensive history. Um, when I was a kid, I paid my name as uh, all the other boys at school called me posh. There was something that was quite 
I guess, Anglo-centric about it. And a lot of my friends at the time um, would have more ethnocentric names. Um, I'm one of my Nigerian friends and African friends. And it's, it was really weird, a really weird relationship with it because, you know, I was a nerdy kid anyway. So I was into comic books and fantasy novels. And I was quite, I guess, academic. And this all tied into this uh, concept of, I guess, somehow I was like a posh kid or, you know, and I was just from around the way, like everybody else. Um, my family are from Hackney. And, you know, I understand that at the time, this is just teasing at school. So, you know, everybody finds whatever it is that's unique about you and they'll tease you about that. So I was never bullied about it, but um, I did, I wasn't receiving end of teasing and, you know, they would call me things like token and coconut or sellout. And, you know, this is maybe one of the worst things you could be called as a young black boy um, going to an inner city secondary school. And it really bothered me. Um, it represented a kind of ostracization from my own identity, from the people that I related to the most. Um, so I was really sensitive about it. But my sensitivity wasn't just resigned to this one aspect of my identity or my name. It kind of carried through in everything. And it's really this sense that still exists today of what blackness is, how blackness should sound, how blackness should present itself, the way you should speak, the way you should look, uh, the way your name. So I kind of had this weird sense of my name didn't fit my ethnicity, not based on my how I felt internally, but just how I was perceived externally. And then when I learned of the, I guess, the expanded history of the name, it became a really, it's a really difficult period of my life to hear that because while I always struggled with this perceived proximity to whiteness, here it is staring me in the face. And it's not a clean history. Um, typically, when a lot of people think of quote unquote slave names, they think of names that are given or the that they're names that are given to them by families that own their families or by ancestors that own their ancestors. Yeah. Or these are surnames that have historically been chosen after enslaved peoples have uh, converted to Christianity or become emancipated. But the history and legacy of slave practices are far more complicated. Uh, because my surname is inherited. So it's not, it's not something that was, you know, bestowed upon us. It really centers around a figure called, uh, uh, Hugh Mill Bunbury, um, who was born to Thomas Bunbury of Cranavanane. I may have butchered that pronouncing. So apologies to any Irish historians who might be listening to this, but, uh, this area is essentially, um, in Ireland in County Carlo. So uh, Thomas Bunbury had Hugh Mill Bunbury, uh, even though Hugh was uh, baptized in Exeter, Devon. Hugh then later moved to the Caribbean as a young man. And uh, in 1796, the British captured the former colony of Demerara, uh, which became British Guyana, which we know as Guyana today. So Guyana in the Caribbean top of South America. Um, in 1799, following the conquest of the island, Hugh Mill then founds the substantial Devonshire estates in British Guyana, which specialize in coffee, cotton, and sugar. 
at its peak, the plantation probably housed about 484 people. So from year to year, it's about, it ranges from about 400 to about 484 at its peak. Um, now during this time, Hugh, who was married, um, fathered several illegitimate children, as I'm told, or several, with what we can safely assume were enslaved African women. But what's unusual about this is these illegitimate children were, illegitimate children were given the Bunbury surname, which in itself is somewhat unusual. And even though Hugh fathered several, several of these illegitimate children, I can only find recorded evidence of a couple or through the research of my uncle. One was Edward, who was born in, I think, 1796. And Edward would have been a, uh, a man of mixed parentage. Um, and Edward actually went on to run the plantation himself um, much later. And Edward's half-brother was George, who was born in 1810. Um, we found George through his connection to the Merchant Navy. And I'm descended from George's line. This Bunbury name has basically been carried through the decades um, since then. And even though George's mother was likely um, an enslaved woman who we believe was either of Ghanaian Ashanti and a Kan descent or Nigerian Yoruba, with evidence pointing to both, there is a narrative that exists about my line of Bunburys being born, quote unquote, free. So even though we, I, we can't know for sure what rights or privileges they did enjoy or what status they did enjoy. They certainly weren't recognized as the children of Hugh Mill Bunbury. Later on in Hugh's history, when uh, we can see uh, the compensation he receives for the plantation much later um, after slavery is, is uh, abolished, and there's various uh, court battles between members of the family, we see that... Um, the illegitimate children are not recognized. And even though they're mentioned in some of these documents, they're not recognized as uh, official Bunburys, so to speak. But that, carry, that line carries all the way through to Guyana, um, through to my grandparents who uh, came over in the 50s, and then my parents who came over um, a little later. So the story is really that proximity to whiteness is quite an uncomfortable place to, to exist in. Uh, the Bunbury involvement in the transatlantic slave trade wasn't just resigned to Ghana, it also extended as far as cotton fields of Virginia. Um, and it's a difficult thing to hear it, and it's very difficult to see. You know, I've seen invoices of the sale and purchase of Africans that are signed with my surname. And you know, it's, a very, it's a very trippy thing to, to experience. Um, but it really speaks to the complexity of these legacies and the complexities of these histories. And when I learn all of this information, it really changed my relationship, not just with myself, but my relationship with my spaces, because I had this inferred sense that my name didn't quite reflect me. And now there it is staring me in the face that yeah. it really doesn't reflect me to a certain extent, but to another extent, it does. You know, to an extent, it, uh, the subsequent Bunburys, George Bunbury, he then had a son also named George in 1854. Uh, George was a farmer. So these are people who are just kind of living their lives. And from that point on, it's very removed from 
anything to do with the trade, even though the Devonshire estate continues for many years and is the site of a very famous uprising in 1872 of indentured servants. Um, so, you know, my line have kind of just lived out their lives and they're as much a part of my heritage as, you know, Hugh Bunbury is. And, you know, uh, my Chinese ancestry uh, from my grandmother's side, which is also, again, a result of indentured servants um, being brought in to colonies like Guyana. Wow. Uh, Gregory, thank you for sharing that. There's there's a lot there and a lot of history. And I can tell, you know, your, your uncle Anthony has done so much research into this. And how did it feel when you first kind of heard all of this? Um, so in those early conversations, also, I have to um, give credit to um, the Irish historian, Telford Bunbury, who we share a common ancestor, but we're from different strains of the Bunbury family tree. Um, his family also hail from um, uh, County Carlo, um, and he's helped fill a lot of these gaps as well. So, yeah, when I, I first learned that information, I guess really... So much of it is based on narrative and the narrative that you choose to represent this history. And I think amongst my family, there is a, I think there's across the board a, a fascination with it. But I think there's a sense that because it, it's not a quote unquote slave name in the way that we, you know, popularly or commonly think of what a slave name is, this brand that's applied to you that there's some sort of, I don't know, respite from that, like some, a, a little bit of a, a bit of a relief. Mm -hmm. However, I didn't, I didn't feel that myself. I actually felt more tension. I think it would have been easier if it had been a name that was just, that we were branded with, as opposed to a name that we've inherited, because we are now part of that history, that history of mm -hmm. the trade of human beings, uh, for decades and decades and decades and decades. And I've seen invoices and articles and newspapers from the time uh, with my surname in relation to stories of escaped enslaved people in, in terms of stories of uprising and murder. And so I didn't find a lot of solace in that. I found a lot of tension. Um, and at that point, I think I'd resigned myself to this idea that I was going to change my name. So this is maybe 20, I think maybe about 20, uh, maybe 21. It might have been a bit later, actually. And it's something that I considered, uh, something that I think about maybe, maybe every other day since then, like literally. Like I, I don't mean that as an embellishment or an exaggeration. It's something that I think about almost every single day. And I've taken this tension and you know, wow. as a designer or as a creative, I decided to run an experiment with it. Uh, I remember it years and years and years ago, um, okay. I had heard this interview of somebody talking about Bob Marley. And I can't remember who it was. Um, it might have been one of the whalers, but they said that so much of Bob's life had been about Bob's uh, parentage, specifically his father and his disconnected relationship with that, his, pro his own proximity to whiteness. And yet how it all transpired is that when you say Marley, everybody thinks of Bob. 
So Bob has recontextualized what the name Marley means just on his own. And I found that a really interesting concept that you could take something and perhaps recontextualize it and have it mean something else. So I already had all this tension from my name as a kid of it sounding not particularly cool and maybe a bit posh. And then I have this tension of learning what my name represents and how it connects to essentially, you know, the world we live in today. And so now I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, what can I do with this that will change how I feel about my name? Can I change how I feel about it? There was a point where I didn't even really like saying it. Um, most people know me as Greg because I shortened it because I, I, it just seemed to feel a bit easier. Um, the cadence was somewhat different. Um, and so the mission then became, can I change my relationship to my name in order to change my relationship with my identity and with my history? Can I be proud of this name somehow? Um, and yeah, I, I've been working on that in the background for the better part of the 20, 25 years. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't resolve. It's still a point of tension and it's still a point of reflection. It's still a point of, you know, should I change it? Will I change it? It's something that I speak to my daughter about. Um, so yeah, it's something that's constantly there, but that proximity also powers what I do now <clears throat> in terms of being in my anti-racism work or my work around uh, diversity and inclusion is in a lot of ways an attempt to recontextualize that history. So not necessarily making amends for it, but in a way trying to do something with it. Yeah. And so you, you've mentioned just there that, you know, you think about changing it kind of every other day. And, you know, that's no exaggeration. You, you do kind of think about that every, every kind of other day and, you know, conversations with your daughter as well. And, and you mentioned that you are kind of on a bit of a journey with, with where you're at with your name and I guess finding comfort in your name. You went through a phase where you, you were really not proud of your name and you didn't even want to kind of really say it. Um, so where would you say you're at on that journey compared to, I guess, the past kind of 20, 25 years ago? Um, at this stage, I, yeah, it's, it's not resolved. It's still ongoing. It's still a point of tension, but it's also a source of inspiration. It's a source of, it kind of resets me and reorientates me whenever I have a period of uh, feeling either uninspired or lost or a little overwhelmed with it all, I remember that. Like, I see it. I see my name pop up, and I see my name on podcasts and public speaking events, and it always reminds me, like, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. I used to have um, – I redrew the uh, the Bunbury family seal because mm -hmm. the, the Bunburys, uh, as far as England was concerned, were a long line of barons. Um, so there's a family crest, and I redrew this crest um which used to live on my computer uh funnily enough it's a crest where you have a uh, two swords piercing a jaguar's head and a jaguar being an animal commonly associated with guyana and south america so there you go um uh, but i use it i use that as a source of this is the why and i believe as creatives and as designers and artists mm. our biggest question needs to be why why am i doing what i'm doing uh, and that's beyond the, you know, the logistical sense of, you know, I have a job to make money. Like, what is my purpose? What is the thing that's driving me? 
Um, and that's what I've used my name for. So I made, a, a, when I first, so I used to work um, at agencies. When I left agencies and started freelancing, um, I started a company and I didn't use my name. And eventually, as part of this project, I consciously put my name as the name of my company in an attempt to try and recontextualize it for myself okay. and to kind of build this sense of purpose, but also legacy. But yeah, it, it's been really impossible. I think the, the hardest point was when my daughter was born because I, at that point, really wanted to change it before she was born. Uh, but stuff just happened so quickly and she arrived a little bit early and it just didn't happen. Um, and now she has her own relationship with it. She has a relationship with her name, which is very separate to my relationship with my, um, my history and my family. And she has a very different experience of it. Um, so I'm always trying to, I guess, honor the connections of my wider family, which, you know, exist in the Caribbean, the United States, in Canada, uh, and obviously here. And, I believe in keeping those connections open and almost using my name as a kind of a forcing function. So this idea that the name in itself presents opportunities for dialogue and it presents opportunities for introspection. And if I remove my name, am I somewhat consigning that past to history? Whereas I think the nuances of our experiences throughout that period speak to the nuances of our landscape today around racism around inequality around uh the legacy of british slavery and uh i guess our post-colonial mindset today so a lot of that is informed by this period but i think that if our narratives are just this kind of no pun intended black and white understanding of slavery or this black and white understanding of uh colonialism i think we miss a lot of the nuance and a lot of the complexity associated with that uh, so it's almost, I always treat my name as a kind of like a monument in my life that I have to walk past every day and have this tension and have this dialogue. Uh, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see. So you mentioned, you know, your work in design and you mentioned how, you know, you've, you actually took an active decision to start using your name a bit more in the work that you do. So, yeah, how do you think that your name has kind of shaped or, or played a role in the experiences that you've had with your um, So the relationship with my name professionally, weirdly enough, mirrored a lot of my experiences growing up because it was like there was a disconnect between how people perceived me mm. and how people uh, perceived the name. So I would show up for meetings and people would be shocked, like visibly shocked when I walked into the room because I wasn't what they expected. I don't know. They expected like a, a Scottish guy with red hair to walk in or something. Um, that's actually something somebody said to me once, um, to the point where I remember going to, I remember going to a meeting in, uh, in Europe where, uh, I think I was maybe early twenties. And uh, my job was to interview a CFO for a, um, a round of press releases. So I walk into the office and he looks up and he just bursts into laughter. Just bursts into laughter. And he just turns around and says, you were the last person I expected to see walking in. Now, for some people, they might, oh, you know, he's not, he's not being mean. 
um, you know, this, this is, he's just, you know, joking. You can't, I, I cannot describe the impact that had for me in that moment. Mm-hmm. Just the, the, the shock and the yeah. outrage, because, you know, where do you go from there? Like you walk in suited and booted professional, you've, you know, you prepare yeah. for your meeting, you're ready to go. You walk in and someone bursts out laughing because you're not what they expected to see. Um, and you know, it went on like that for a long time. I remember another, uh, instance where there was almost a sense of hostility in, I went for a job, I think it was an art worker for a, um, an architecture studio and the, uh, interviewer looked almost, mm. I guess, like they'd been tricked. Like it, there was a real sense of hostility and the questioning of the interview became primarily racial. I was be just being asked questions about my heritage, where I was from, why I'd chosen this topic for my dissertation and not something quote unquote black. It was unbelievable. Um, and it got to the point where I started finding ways to announce my ethnicity ahead of job interviews and meetings. This is a time before LinkedIn. Um, so I remember at one point I actually started adding my photo to my CVs just to avoid the embarrassment of walking into the room and having somebody like look up at you with shocked eyes. Uh, and then I start like navigating these spaces in all of these bizarre ways. Like I remember having conversations with people uh, or prospective employers or people that I was meeting with. And I would sometimes speak in a, a way that signposted that I was a person of color just to get it out of the way. Just so it's just almost like, look, here's my ethnicity. Let's deal with it now. So it's not an issue when I walk into the office um, a day or a week later. And there was a sense perhaps of, I guess, hiding behind the work. And I think with a lot of creatives of color in the design industry, there's an almost anonymity depending on the kind of work you're doing. What I was doing was um, very commercial. So uh, business to business, a lot of IT, a lot of corporate stuff some consumer stuff, some fashion stuff. And as a, a jobbing designer or a creative, you're often behind your work. So you often are just a, a kind of a faceless drone yeah. producing the work. And, you know, that's fine to a, a certain extent, but it also means that it's much easier to be marginalized in that sense. Because if all things are equal in what I do, if everybody can use Photoshop, then why would one person be selected over the others. And that's where cognitive bias comes into play. Um, and you, I found that my value as a designer was fairly non-existent. And I made a conscious effort to step in front of my work. Uh, following a couple of um, particular instances at agencies, I found within me, I was like, that's the, the point of my biggest point of contention. So I'm going to steer into it. I'm going to lean into that point and let's see if I can kind of transform myself from the inside out. Um, so I stepped in front of my work and I also became more purposeful in what I wanted my work to be about and building agency as an advocate for greater diversity in the design industry, which led on to a lot more of my diversity and inclusion work. But it came from a conscious choice of I'm going to step out in front of this. And I'm going to use this tension to try and not only build my own authority, 
because a lot of this comes from that sense of authority. When you're just a person behind a person behind a person, um, you don't have a lot of leverage. And I found that I could build leverage by building my advocacy, by speaking out on what I experienced and what I saw around me. It mm -hmm. raised my level of authority and that raised my leverage. And ultimately, what I want for all creatives of colors to get to the point where you can start asking questions of your environment rather than your environment asking questions of you. So instead of it being this constant negotiation of space, you can negotiate on your own terms. Does this space represent me as an individual? Is this space truly inclusive? Um, if a space isn't inclusive, if it isn't diverse, what does that mean for this space? Where is that coming from? Is it cultural? Is it structural? Um, and as time has gone on and I've built more authority and leverage around my name, it's changed my relationship with these spaces. Um, so, you know, in a weird way, it's started to serve me in the sense that I, there's a, a certain amount of reputation around my work and there's a certain amount of profile. And I say none of this in terms of being egocentric. I have no desire to be uh, the most, I don't know, the most tweeted or the most followed. I have no interest in fame or that level of social capital. I'm not trading on my ethnicity. My ethnicity is essentially my art. My relationship with my ethnicity is essentially my art. I'm not defined by it, not entirely. Um, it's not a box where I can't really move or traverse these spaces because of my adherence. I can play with facets of this identity. And, you know, it, even just even in how I speak or how I dress. And, you know, you notice all of these points. You know, I remember a girlfriend um, when I must have been maybe late teens. Remember a girl I was dating uh, who's also of Caribbean heritage uh, being absolutely convinced that I'm, I was from Eton. Absolutely convinced. Like I was from, you must be, you must be, you, you must be. Because young black men aren't supposed to be articulate. Young black men aren't supposed to be eloquent. Young black men aren't supposed to be professional. You're supposed to sound like this and you're supposed to present yourself like this. And maybe you have these particular kinds of names. And I think the refusal to fit neatly into those boxes is actually a more accurate reflection of our shared history, which doesn't fit neatly into boxes, which doesn't fit neatly into spaces. So I'm quite happy to color outside of the lines, uh, so to speak, with how I present myself and how I present my name. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an ongoing dialogue, like any good art project should be. And, you know, I may get to the point where one day I decide, you know what, I am, I am ready for a change. I am ready to change it. Um, but even then, it will be as the result of an internal process. It won't be either external pressure or some need to conform to some sense of identity one way or another. It will be an internal process that I can you know, safely say that I've explored and really pushed to its limit. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it's, it definitely sounds like there's been such a journey going from, you know, applying for job roles and feeling like you had to disclose your background to them before them ever seeing you in person, just to avoid the kind of confrontational awkwardness around them 
realizing that you're not the person that looks like the person that they had in their head after reading about your reading your name or reading about your experiences and now you've kind of gone on this journey where you are being more upfront and you're stepping in front of your work as you just mentioned so how does that feel now that you're now kind of I guess leading with your name and your identity rather than kind of being behind um I am very grateful for the increased sense of agency that it's provided me and the feeling somewhat more grounded and able to really build my own narrative out of my um, my surname and my family history. So it's been really positive in that sense. In terms of my work, because it's achieved a certain level of profile, I don't have to have those awkward conversations uh, anymore. I feel like it's when I'm leading with that, it's almost like, uh, you know, as, as I described uh, one of the art projects that I work on, it's like flag in the ground. So you have this flag in the ground and rather than you having to navigate through these spaces to connect with people who share your values, who share your ethos, who share your outlook, they gravitate towards you. And by wearing my cultural identity uh, on my sleeve, so to speak, which, you know, it, it's a weird thing to say out loud because it's just something that everybody's done. But in terms of uh, for people of color, it's a space that we've had to think about and we've had to approach in a, a different way. Um, but yeah, by embracing that and by leaning into it, it's actually attracted like-minded individuals and collaborators and organizations to me in a way that I, I don't think I could have found them any other way. And it's been, I guess that's really the strongest reason for me holding on to the name just based on not just what it represents to me but just the connective tissue yeah. that it represents but yeah it's become my relationship with it has become far more positive however the history and the legacy of my name is still like it's still a painful thing like you know even today even in um getting uh, ready for this conversation and i've been thinking about it all weekend and it's still a, it's still a, a strange space to try and reconcile. You mentioned that you're involved in a lot of kind of diversity, equity, and, and inclusion work. Yeah. So, as a result from my um, building my advocacy around great representation in the design industry, and my own bouts of what I would call creative advocacy, all of these ideas. My family history, my experiences in the creative industry, my advocacy all coalesced really in my work in the DNI space. Um, and it, I guess it really started from a series of articles that I was featured in just as a voice from within the industry uh, and then uh, other avenues like my blog writing and the connections that led me to. Which, you know, even just through that medium exposed me and connected me to a wider community of uh, designers and creators of color that I, I wouldn't have been able to find otherwise. Um, and then with my uh, Black Outdoor Art Project, which was hosted by a media company called Brumhood Media that we started in 2020, all of these elements coalesced and created uh, opportunities for me to 
work with organizations like the Unmistakables and the Diversity Standards Collective and add my voice to conversations and workshops around diversity and inclusion, both in terms of professional contexts and uh, societal ones, uh, where whether it be a campaign that's targeting a particular ethnic group or an ethnic minority, or if it's an internal measure around diversity or representation, uh, I've been able to lend my voice and my perspective to these uh, conversations and discussions. And in these conversations and discussions, this for me is where the real transformation lies. I'm a big advocate of process over output. So the ideas that go into the things we make um, being more important than the thing we actually make. And this space has given me the opportunity to really interrogate and challenge ideas. And I think that's, that's the space where we'll see uh, measurable change and transformation. So a lot of this has come really from that tension of my relationship with my um, family history. So it's amazing to be able to recontextualize it and have it be useful in this way. Greg, thank you so much for sharing your story, sharing your wisdom, sharing your insights with us today. I've definitely personally learned a lot and it's, it's really got me thinking. Thank you. Um, thank you for thank having you me. So I really appreciate it. Thank you.